Well, welcome, welcome. Welcome to another Crypto Goss. This is Peter Robertson here at Crypto Studios, Melbourne Bitcoin Technology Centre in South Bank, Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. And uh, I'm joined in the studio today with a special guest, Raphael Taylor. Welcome, Raphael. Good to be with you. You're a freelance journalist. You're a free thinker. You're a libertarian socialist. Mm -hmm. You're based here in Melbourne, I believe. And uh, you're a campaigner with Australians for Kurdistan, building solidarity networks with the Rojava revolution, which I'm looking forward to finding out all about. Mm -hmm. And assisting me here today is uh, another Melbourne Bitcoin Technology Centre member, Grant Lennartz. Hi, Grant. Good morning. Uh, Grant, you've described yourself as a digital entrepreneur with a special interest in blockchain and cryptocurrencies. Absolutely. And uh, your special topic, you tell me, <laughs> is the evolution of consumer civilization. Well, I'll be interested to hear what Raphael has to say about that. All right. Very sweet. All right. Well, uh, this is going to be a very interesting and uh, perhaps a more political uh, episode than we would normally do, which I think is a good thing. And, uh, Raphael, can you start to tease out for us a little bit, uh, perhaps, where would you like to start? Can we start with the revolution, do you think? I think it would be better to start with the just the general macroeconomics of Bitcoin, because people, uh, your listeners and mine, after my introduction, are familiar with, now basically familiar with the blockchain and this, its most popular current application, the Bitcoin. However, people aren't generally familiar with the effect this is already having on uh, whole countries, and also the potential effect that it could have as well. And so I think we could use Rojava, I'd love to use Rojava as a case study, um, but let's begin perhaps discussing the basic macroeconomics of Bitcoin and also criticisms by my favorite uh, economist, uh, Yanis Varoufakis, who some of you may know is a world-renowned academic, a game theorist, currently the economist in residence for Valve Corporation, which is quite a cool job title, a former finance minister for Greece. And he has done a lot of he speaks on a lot of topics, but he's specifically criticized, he's advanced a variety of criticisms of uh, of Bitcoin specifically and digital currencies in general. He calls himself a skeptical enthusiast uh, of Bitcoin. So, Okay, well, you'll be able to represent his, uh, his uh, objections and um, cautions on that and uh, being... Uh, being the kind of uh, podcast this is, we welcome a bit of dissent, don't we, Grant? Absolutely. And uh, I, I understand that he's not completely down on the whole thing. He's uh, he's got a sort of a high level view. Would you say? Oh, certainly. His he is a macroeconomist, so his main concern is the development of global civilization, I suppose, through an economic lens. So he studied things like the trends of financialization, the European Union, and so on, the intrinsic flaws in that institution, as well as the causes behind, for example, 1929, 2008, the problems with uh, exchange rates and all sorts of things. So he's taking a very uh, bird's eye view of things, but he's, uh, of course, as any sophisticated intellectual, uh, his, his opinion is developing as Bitcoin is developing. Um, as I said before, he calls himself a skeptical enthusiast. And he says, quite an interesting quote, that Bitcoin is a solution in need of a problem. Now, for, for the, those of us here in that <laughs> might find that uh, a, 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 a treasonous or blasphemous statement. However, How it's potentially he? misleading because yeah. he, re- he re- rephrases it as a search 
of problems yet to be articulated, which I think is is a very keen way of putting it. In the sense that I think that most of Bitcoin's applications have yet to be most most of the blockchain's applications have yet to be prob- uh, properly fleshed out. And especially because people in our society aren't critical of the right things. We're critical of, for example, the potential of a neoliberal government versus a social social democratic government in providing employment or controlling the interest rates. We're not so interested in the potential of climate change to make significant chunks of the planet not habitable for, for decent living for whole towns to sink into the ocean. We're not so interested in systemic risk. That is, the increasing financialization and lack of banking regulation leading to possible collapse of entire economies. It is very difficult for human beings to be actively and consistently focused on long-term goals. We're, we're very short-term, medium-term focused, and no doubt that's a product of our evolutionary arc, but uh, that's quite true. I mean, when you, when you think about how devastating it could be to the planet to have less land to live on and less arable land in particular... Um, it's a huge problem. But, yeah, I don't think about it every day, do you, Grant? You may be do. As long as the monkeys have enough fruit, they're pretty happy. Yeah, but and that's that short-term thing, isn't it? Yeah. Right but, now. But, but it's also but it's also an ideological consequence of the idea of that there is no alternative, the Thatcherite doctrine. Uh, or as Peter Hitchens, who is a conservative writer who I uh, quite enjoy, uh, despite my disagreements with him, says... Uh, naming capitalism is like – he's got this great voice – naming capitalism is, is like naming the air and therefore thinking you can come up with an alternative to the air. You know, so this idea is capitalism is is just a necessary evolution and consequence of human nature. Whereas if you look at his, – if you're historically literate, you can see there's a, a deliberate construction or a variety of quite violent developments. Uh, so things like the enclosure programs, forcing peasants off the land – uh, in, into the cities and so on. And you can see that there are a variety of alternatives beyond the old paradigm of more government, socialism, less government, liberty. You know, that is a ideological construct of the 1970s, the Libertarian Party, uh, Ayn Rand going back a bit farther, Milton Friedman and so on. Uh, only someone who is historically and ideologically illiterate and who, 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 whose only contact with socialism is Marxist-Leninism. And whose only contact with other ideas, and, and who hasn't even heard uh, of, 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 of you know ecological theories and institutional economics and heterodox, heterodox economics in general, uh, would have that view. But unfortunately, that is the, the the mainstream ideological narrative, and so people don't people think that uh, money, markets, wages, these things are as natural as leaves from trees, and so on. Nothing could be farther from the truth, as can well, be easily demonstrated. Well, I often think of capitalism as my environment, as a matter of reality. It's not that there isn't, to me, an alternative or many alternatives possible, but this is where I live now. Mm. It's once again that that sort of uh, automatic uh, right here, right now, and tomorrow's problem, but beyond that, hey, okay, I'll, I'll pay my mortgage eventually, I'll own a house, but, you know, that's a very abstract thing and a very long-term thing, and you put yourself into a framework where that happens as a matter of course. It's not consciously, actively deliberate every day. It's fulfilling some plan automatically. Quite different from saying I could change the world. Yeah, but the problem is we have emergent thinking in all other other domains. We understand how things gradually change and develop and so on. But um, but in this domain, we 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 see very heated debate in a very narrow spectrum, and we don't question the assumptions upon which 
mainstream economics or uh, neoclassical economic, economics, as is now the consensus, uh, is is founded. If you actually study economics, you can see uh, the foundations of it are quite astonishingly uh, detached from reality. The idea of individuals as fully autonomous and rational agents, for example. So we're competing over territory enclosed by uh, false boundaries. Yes, but this was this was historically designed by the evolution of political economy, uh, which was a system of thought of the classical economic model uh, in which people like Adam Smith, Karl Marx, David Ricardo, and so on were operating, uh, in which economics and pol- the economic and political sphere were viewed as intri- viewed as intrinsically linked. Economic policy was political policy; it was influenced by different value systems; it was ideological, and so on. Whereas now, economics is viewed as this uh, technical separate domain from the, uh, from the world. And the effect of that is uh, that le- the elites can advance any sort of policies that they like and they say, well, it's just economics. You know, it's the economy is stupid. It's, it's economic laws and all the rest of it, rather than a particular quite flawed uh, economic philosophy, which is underpinning it. But to go back to Bitcoin and blockchain for a second, uh, the basic thing to introduce to people b- before getting into the political philosophy, when, when I talk to them about it, and I pick this up from... Uh, Andreas Antelopoulos on the Joe Rogan experience. By the way, quick side note: this is a great introduction to blockchain. But if you want a if you want a very comprehensive one, I would heavily suggest Andreas Antonopoulos's interviews on the Joe Rogan experience. That's where I first came across uh, Bitcoin. Um, what he does is he focuses on the immediate application of it, the boring, the technically efficient uses of it. That is, how can you produce? more with less effectively or how can you cut costs arbitrary costs uh, and one of the, the, the one of the boring thing ways which your listeners will be aware of is the is remittances uh, so obviously when you send a certain like $100 say to your family in a third world country a bunch of that is chewed up by uh, money handlers and some of it gets lost in the exchange rate and so on and it takes quite a long time it's laborious and all the rest however if you send in bitcoin there will be some variance due to the relative volatility of the uh, Bitcoin exchange, the Bitcoin exchanges at the moment. But more or less, you will get you get a far closer approximation of the money you send. Uh, you know, w- within a couple of dollars, depending on the the day. Rafael, right. I'm just curious about how I was. I'm just talking to some friends last night, and how I explained the blockchain to them wasn't a trustless distributed system. Quite the opposite. I was like, it is a permanent record, so it is actually a truth machine. And that, in some ways, is like becoming historically literate, so you know the facts of history, which gives you a bigger view of things, and we can all look at the same facts, which is in some senses a bit scientific. Um, So is the blockchain a truth machine, and does technology change economics? Well, the more trust that exists between people, the more freely people are, uh, the more free people feel to express themselves and to explore different lines of inquiry and so on. Uh, and also, well, there, 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 are, there are two components to this. One, the more technically efficient things become, uh, the less difficulty people have in living, the less precarious their circumstances. And obviously, with greater uh, free time and energy comes a greater ability to expand one's moral intellectual and other capacities but also precisely as you say the blockchain enables people uh to develop trust uh between 
strangers in a way that's previously only possible through establishing a long-term uh, or medium-term relationship. I mean, I'm... I mean, I've, I've certainly... I've suffered from this in the other direction as it happens. <clears throat> I'm someone who's a bit overly generous with people I've just met. I've, I have DVD box sets hidden away in other people's storage, and I'm going to see my friend after this podcast to pick up my whiteboard. But, <laughs> but you know, with, with something like... With these sharing economy initiatives like the street bank for example which enable enables people it's essentially like a free ebay you can either give things away like lemons or whatever or you can share things like you can let you can lend things and so on with no, no money involved now this has seen quite widespread adoption in england smaller adoption in australia and america but it would be far far easier if you could have a uh, blockchain regulation system in addition to the reputation system which they already have uh, to ensure that, for example, if someone doesn't fulfill a certain commitment or someone breaks your items and so on, uh, they might incur some cost. It doesn't even have to be financial, though. The cost can be uh, barring from participation in the network for a number of weeks. It doesn't, but it doesn't have to be negative either. It can be a positive. It can be a positive incentive. It can just be if you do something bad, you don't get rewarded. If you do something good, you do get rewarded. Any mixture is possible, as you know. And I think yes, that will expand. Um, Peter Singer's concept of the sort of empathy circle. So his his idea is throughout human evolution that the, the, the circle of people through which we can empathize and have uh, positive social relationships has been expanding from the individual to the family to the tribe to the locality and eventually to the nation and to the world through internationalism. And I think block, the reason the blockchain is so fascinating to me, the main reason – is that it makes this spiritual revolution so much easier. It is the key technology to enabling it, um, in my mind, to my mind. And if you just look at... Bit- How? <laughs> well, it gets complicated. <laughs> um, but as a, libert- well, as a libertarian socialist, and perhaps I, I, should, I should very much define what that is, um, a brief tangent, if you'll indulge me... Uh, in the middle of the 19th century, 1860s and 70s, there was the so-called First International. International Working Men's Association was what it was called, and it was the International Socialist Organization. And it had three wings, uh, three major wings. One was the Social Democratic Wing, uh, which goes on to found parties like the Labour Party in Australia, not very sexy or interesting. Um, and the other two wings were what has been called later the libertarian and authoritarian socialists. Authoritarian socialists led by Karl Marx and his allies, Engels and so on, and the libertarian branch led by a Russian philosopher called Bakunin. And he called himself... Of course, they don't like being called authoritarian socialists. They call themselves Marxists, uh, and some of them call themselves Marxist-Leninists, and all the deviations there in Trotsky, Stalinist, etc. Whereas the libertarian socialists... Uh, eventually came up with other names for themselves. Federalists, anarchists is a very popular one as well. Well, take a step back here. Socialism means the social ownership and, and use rights of the means of production, communication, and exchange. The key word here is social. And the differences in the, in, in the schools of socialism depends on what they understand as being social in, in the social ownership. A, democr- a social democrat or a democratic socialist uh, ranging from relatively moderate Labour parties on through to someone like Bernie Sanders or Eva Morales in Bolivia, uh, say that uh, social ownership means effectively a combination of cooperatives 
run by individuals and collectives independent of state control, and also state ownership, which is has which is democratically accountable. Authoritarian, so that, that, that's the centrist position, if you like. The right wing position, the, you know, the, the socialist right wing, is the is the authoritarian socialists, to whom social ownership means state control. And in theory, the idea is that the state would wither away, uh, and the the those enterprises and resources would be devolved to the hands of the people. In essence, they want what libertarian socialists want, but they try and attain it by doing the exact opposite, rather than. Uh, Decentral, rather than decentralizing political power and democratizing wealth directly to individuals, letting them then control it from the bottom up, their idea is centralized in the hands of the state, and then magically through central planning, <laughs> devolve it back down again. And we saw how that turned out. Uh, libertarian socialists, however, believe in the social to them means directly democratic self-management on every sphere of society, sort of the community, of the workplace, uh, uh, you know, cons- consumer associations, civil society associations. And this is essentially the political philosophy underpinning the Rojava experiment, which I'll come back to uh, at, a, at a later stage. But the problem with this form of social organization is that it requires one of the, our, our key values, which is solidarity between people. And solidarity necessitates trust. You can't have growth, growing empathy with other people and concern for their needs without trusting them to respect your autonomy, respect your resources, and so on. Now, there are social, uh, spiritual, and political means of overcoming that barrier, but they're far more difficult, and they can do well. With, they can benefit greatly from the assistance of technologies like, firstly, the internet, and now the second generation of the internet the blockchain, because it enables people, and this is a, a brief note, I think the, mo- the greatest success of the first generation of blockchain applications will be to render themselves irrelevant and, and useless. And what I mean by this is they, they will be able to bring people together by binding them to common agreements, which they can, themselves can write up and they can negotiate democratically or otherwise, and they can enforce by themselves through the blockchain uh, uh, um, arbitration and consensus um, mediums and that will bring them together to the point where they develop so much real world trust by first overcoming the trust problem through blockchain that the actual blockchain application or at least a large portion of it will become unnecessary and people can uh, now that doesn't mean that I think that, pe- that blockchain use will increase and then decrease I think that it will increase in other areas it will, it will have more technical application but I think that the purpose of its social applications will be to make its user unnecessary. So it'll show people that new social relationships are possible. Then they'll engage in those social relationships, and they'll no longer have need for the punitive measures or the regulatory measures that things like... Uh, Make that practical yeah. for us. What does new social relationships mean? Well, for example, in, we, in, the sharing economy is, is a... Uh, is a term that refers to two things. There's the one hand, the sort of precarious economy, which is uh, people selling their spare time and their spare items to get by in an, in an economy which is increasingly dominated by service jobs. And they, because of the decline of unionism, they don't have uh, safety regulations, or they don't have workplace um, protections and all the rest. But then there's the un- another thing in, fe- in parallel and symbiosis with that development, which is the solidarity economy which involves actual genuine expansion 
of consumer-to-consumer sharing of resources. Uh, for example, a very, a very boring old-school example would be a community garden or a community tool shed. Most people, when they want to drill a hole in the wall, they want a hole in the wall. They don't necessarily want a power drill. So people can lower their cost of, pr- cost of production, lower eco- their ecological footprint, and also just increase technical efficiency and, if it, and, and, and have more spare time by creating things like tool sheds. Now, people can get their own tool. If, they, if, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you're a enthusiast, uh, if you're a mechanic or something, you have, you, by all means, develop your own. But most regular people in our, in our society, don't really, we don't really need, we don't feel that we need, I certainly don't feel that I need a variety of complicated tools. Now, the problem with those, with those initiatives which already exist is that there's this huge barrier to entry when you propose them to people who are not part of the system because they're not aware of the trust which is inside the system. So the blockchain says... Uh, and likewise, incumbents in the system may well not trust the new arrivals. Precisely. Yeah. Yes. So we have these two these two difficulties in the solidarity economy. On the one hand, these initiatives are relatively local, and on the other hand, there is relatively little sharing between the sharing initiatives, or solidarity between the solidarity initiatives. Uh, that is, there are many of these organisations which could easily work together. Say you have some cooperative uh, restaurant in the same locality as a community garden. Perhaps surplus produce of this community garden, e.g. extra carrots or whatever, can be delivered there. Or extra produce from the cafe can be delivered to the local um, food street kitchen, which is feeding the homeless. Uh, uh, but when you propose this relationship, people feel like they need to know each other, they need to, they need to know that things are going to go well and so on. What you can do is say, look, you don't need to worry about that because we have... Uh, a smart contract, which says if we don't fulfill our part of the obligation, then uh, we'll maybe pay you a fee, or we can do a bond, and you'll get your bond money back. Or again, it doesn't have to be monetary; it could be uh, an exchange of another another service, or so on. The possibilities are em- endless, but you can yes, you've already solved a technical trust problem. You can solve a, a social trust problem by providing this security, which typically only things like banks and governments can do. This massively empowers civil society initiatives to develop their own alternatives, building a new society in the shell of the old. So you were talking about a uh, a micro example, sort of a community-based example where people get to um, know where they are in the the whole trust picture through some kind of accounting and clearly uh, the Bitcoin blockchain or other blockchains could provide a very good ledger for that kind of Mm -hmm. approach. Uh, uh, just just very briefly, there's less opportunity cost is the essential point to get here. Anytime, even a cooperative or radical uh, enterprise or group wants to engage in some interesting social experiment, there's always the opportunity cost. What if this fails and it leads to us having less time to develop what's on the menu or to expand our networks or to increase our funding? This means that that opportunity cost is accounted for via any number of mechanisms. The most obvious mundane example is uh, something like a bond or, uh, you know, so if your cooperative engages in this and we don't fulfill our obligation, then we, as part of this agreement, have to come in and help. There's a forfeiture of some exactly. kind, yes. Exactly. But, of course, that can actually be enacted automatically if you're using the kinds of technology mm. that we're talking about. But mm. I just uh, – we very early in the piece, I think it was Grant mentioned uh, remittances. Um, I have a direct experience with that one. Uh, in the 90s, I was uh, importing products from the U.S., 
and uh, I would place ad hoc orders for these products. And uh, then the uh, supplier would send me an invoice. I would do a TT, a telegraphic transfer, and send them the money. And every single time the money arrived at the other end, it was short. And it was short when we had a look at the statements because some unknown family bank in the backwoods of nowhere somewhere in the US who happened to be party to the transaction for some unknown reason would steal some of the money. And... um, you know, they would have some bogus charge code on there and then the supplier would issue a new invoice for the uh, for the shortfall and this and this this would always get put on to the next order and all of that sort of nonsense. And it used to make me so angry. But what it really emphasizes is the importance of taking that intermediary out of the picture. Now today if that supplier would had agreed to it I could have their money to them in an hour, not a week. Uh, I wouldn't be paying any bank charges and there'd be nobody sticking their fingers in the till on the way through. Uh, So um, it's not only a question of efficiency and it's not only a question of not being able to fiddle with the ledgers themselves, but it's a fact that you absolutely remove that third party from the transaction. So our relationships become direct. The other, the other thing about mm. thinking about transactions on blockchains, um, I've often heard it said that uh, to transact is a form of speech. We have a conversation around value and uh, we agree on something or another and then we actually solidify that conversation through the transfer of value. And uh, so this mechanism obviously can carry messages that aren't money and they can be immutable, incorruptible and all of these kinds of characteristics. So I think it does form a very important basis for just about any kind of relationship between human beings that you could imagine. Mm. Yes, that last point. Any kind of relationship between human beings you can imagine. That's not hyperbole in this circumstance. It's not. The no. crucial thing to notice here is that with with the blockchain technology, you can exchange you can exchange or share or give away anything in any way. Think about that. That's the main point to get here. Don't 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 don't, don't be thinking too narrowly. And this isn't this is advice not to the Bitcoin and blockchain literate. This is advice to social thinkers, radicals, philosophers, and so on. This, this, the applications of this technology are infinite, potentially. Um, so are you saying we're going to develop new currencies? Uh, no, I think we're going to replace currencies with things like tokens and other things which are non-circulatory, don't function as money. Uh, and Contracts? Uh, yeah, move to a post-money system where the rule of law is what arranges economic relationships uh, through a combination of smart AI algorithms and some directly democratic process combining together uh, to produce the greatest represent- accurate representation of preferences uh, in, in a some, some in a virtuous manner not just pure preferences but preferences channeled through uh, debate and, and, val- and value systems and, so, and, and you know, alternative value systems. So the idea with the greatest technical efficiency. The idea of encoding democratic intent 
into a self-executing system. And uh, uh, were you? Uh, did you ever get across the? Um, uh, what's the name of the voting system? Uh, Flux. Flux. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, I voted for them. Unfortunately, they were very uh, unsuccessful this election. But they said they're going to continue, irrespective of the they ca- results. They came in late, and I've often thought, what are other circumstances in which uh, that system can be used? And very simply, having having introduced it, we do have to explain it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, at, at its very simplest, it's like a uh, a hierarchical voting system where uh, a representative while in their term, and that is a senator in this case, in the model proposed, uh, would agree that they would carry out the aggregate will of their constituency through a process where people would vote electronically. Those votes would be uh, accrued on this blockchain. They couldn't be interfered with. And people could also elect on an ad hoc basis to have a... uh, an expert in a field that they didn't understand uh, vote on their behalf. So you could have a hierarchical aggregation of votes or you could vote directly on any given issue and this would be issue by issue. We would be moving right away from a party system and to a fully participatory system uh, during a term, not at the beginning of a term when you put somebody in there and trust they're going to do what you were thinking at the time. Yeah, well, the problem with this is it's thinking within a representative it's 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 coming from a, a a statist political philosophy, effectively replacing representative democracy, but replicating many of its features, like was ha- happened in, uh, in Athens, and it, it it restricts itself to the immediately political sphere. So there were already have red lights and problems with that example. But just going briefly back to what you said before, uh, your example of of the blockchain, I had I had an immediate experience with this in trying to establish what I call the free exchange network here in Melbourne. The idea was encourage sharing between sharing initiatives to increase their exposure and lower their cost of production. So I went out to a variety of different people. Uh, the street bank, which I've already mentioned, uh, a bunch of uh, street kitchens, cooperative organizations, all of which shared a basic social philosophy. And they loved the idea. And they jumped at it. And they were happy to discuss anything, happy to discuss it with me in a variety of ways. And these are very different organizations in many cases. We're large, small giving things away, sharing things, selling things for profit, not for profit, and so on. But they shared this essential commitment to a variety of goals like lowering the ecological footprint, lowering cost of production, increasing technical efficiency, reducing waste, and so on, uh, having a more participatory economy, having, you know, not, not, not making the economy a democracy-free zone, effectively. However, it ultimately failed because me as an intermediary, well, who am I? I'm, I'm one activist, and even though I had a variety of organizations, political organizations, who were on board with it, it still wasn't sufficient. Because, again, there's the opportunity cost for all these organizations, whether you're a charity or, or a non-for-profit or a for-profit. Uh, the opportunity cost of being involved in an experiment like this is just too high in the current, uh, in the current economy because charities compete with each other just as much as companies do as well. But, it, but the, blo- the blockchain, in addition to probably a larger, more sophisticated type of organization... Uh, is sufficient to overcome this problem, I believe. And and in Rojava, that's what they're currently doing, which I'll come to in a second. But very briefly, going back to Varoufakis's criticisms, because we didn't really... Yeah, let's them. run through those. That's interesting. He, he brings up two essential things. One, the security problem, which is effectively that a hacker can hack into your computer and take your bitcoins away. And he also brings up that this would be a huge problem for banks. Somebody robs a bank, online it would be far easier. Now... 
there are a variety of technical solutions to the former problem uh, of just hacking someone, hacking your individual bitcoins. And there's, and the question we need to be asking ourselves about the latter is, to what extent are there technical needs for actual banks to hold the keys to bitcoins? Is that completely irrelevant? We can discuss that in a second. That, I see, is an easier problem to overcome. The second one is more complicated, the economic problem. So the security problem, the economic problem. The economic problem uh, is that Bitcoin has the potential, because it's a deflationary currency, similar, modeled similar to the gold standard, to not have the same kind of shock-absorbing mechanisms that a central, that a, that a strong central fiat currency would have, and therefore it'd be more, if it were adopted as the currency of a nation, a state or, or a group of states, it would be more vulnerable to external shocks like 1929 or two, 2008. And so the second one is my bigger, is, is my greater, and I think should be all of our greater concern, addressing the potential macroeconomic problems associated with Bitcoin as as a national currency, because we think it's, as Bitcoin enthusiasts, so significant that surely that's on the horizon at some stage. The the the, the concept is that this will supersede the fiat. Can so I if, can I comment on that one? I'd, sure, lo- I'd really like sure. to come in on that one first. Okay. Um, I don't know many people who have spent a lot of time thinking about Bitcoin and crypto in general who really believe that Bitcoin is going to replace uh, national fiats. Um, the the view I most often hear is that uh, national fiats will become blockchained in some form or another and that Bitcoin will probably be a parallel system uh, mm. available to those who wish to use it and quite possibly being used in various ways by fiat systems as a further security mechanism or whatever. But uh, I don't think that... I think think of that as a bit of a non-issue. Now, if it were to occur, you can imagine what the market cap for Bitcoin would have to be. There are only ever going to be 21 million of them. And if those 21 million Bitcoin were going to carry the... uh, the, the international financial system's liquidity, the market cap is sort of astronomical to even think about. I, I think it's a non-issue. I don't think it's a. Uh, I, I don't think it stops Bitcoin's future. It simply, uh, when as we think about it, it tells us what Bitcoin's future might be. Mm. I don't. I don't think it's an issue. Yes, and of course, uh, Bitcoin is just one cryptocurrency. That's you can right. have counter. You can have inflationary. Yeah. Uh, or other types of currencies, if you wish. So that's not intrinsic to uh, cryptocurrencies. That's just intrinsic to Bitcoin, even yeah. if it were true. Yeah. Um, but what about this? What about the security problem? Is there is there a need for organisations to hold people's keys, or is that or is that completely not like like Mt. Gox? Can I put it another way? I think this is an insurance problem. Yes, uh, there's going to be bad bad actors in the system. If you're trying to div- design a perfect system so you take away human bad acting that that goes against like 5,000 years of human history I think that's a little, it's a little bit naive to, to try to design a perfect system and then say it isn't perfect therefore you know really? you can't solve every problem at once and does it mean that when you have a proposal that doesn't solve absolutely every problem it's not worth worrying about I mean it's just yeah. and and I mean that whole idea of an individual's uh, security is not peculiar to crypto or anything else it's it's a general problem yes it's a problem yeah. Crypto doesn't solve that 
particularly. No, and that's why I'd put it as a more of an insurance problem. You've got your wealth and maybe you can lose it. Maybe you can lose it through storms or uh, war mm. or theft. And traditionally, that's, the, that's where insurances come into the play. Do you want to cover your risk? Yeah. Well, that's a, not just that, but also, of course, the other important role the banks play is uh, making profits. And so the idea is if Bitcoin is a, or the blockchain is adopted to some degree, it is going to be part of the uh, increasing financial profits in some way or other. And the question is, is that going to be linked to using people's savings for that measure as it currently is or not? And the, 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 the point that Varoufakis is making is that if people... And I think he's also he's considered, as have other people, the potential of this to help a country like Greece, of which he was the former finance minister. Uh, and if if a, if a, now, you're, now now you're saying Peter that, that you don't think that's even on the horizon, but I have heard people say that it, it would be an interesting experiment at least to either have a two-tier exchange rate system, yeah, which is partial Bitcoin, partial US dollar, for example, or a full Bitcoin, uh, uh, as a Bitcoin as a national currency, and. In that case, you got you know, two parallel systems, fiat and Bitcoin. In both instances, you have a greedy finance sector who wants to gamble with other people's savings and make profits, assuming that remains constant. One is gambling with cash, but also things like securitized derivatives. The other is gambling with this online thing. And, and, the, and the fear is the centralization of the keys in this process, which is what brought down... Mount Gox. Do we have sufficient reason to believe that's not going to happen? Uh, no. <clears throat> the evidence is that it does happen. It has happened a number of times. The, this impulse towards centralisation and its competitor, the idea of complete peer-to-peer working and decentralisation, these are the forces that are in debate here. And what are the reasons for having mm-hmm. a centralised ledger that um, is only necessary for somebody else to take control of your money? Well, that question sort of answers itself. Somebody else wants to take control of your money and or uh, have visibility on how you transact. So the stakeholders there are both the incumbents in the existing financial system and, of course, governments. Governments want to tax you. They also want to know that you're not uh, doing things with your money that they don't approve of. Uh, that you're not engaged in criminal activity, terrorism, etc., or just maybe things they ideologically are opposed to. And uh, so that that sort of comes down to that kind of a contest. And uh, I'm persuaded that individuals in a civil society should be free to transact and converse in whatever way they wish. That's just my opinion. Um, we can sure. see where we can see where the competing forces are there, and uh, the incumbents are very clearly on the side of centralisation, and their t- their uptake on uh, blockchain is to try and tame blockchain and make it look like what they've already got, but be a bit mm. better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just like yeah, just like they try to do, but they're going to create intranets, as Antonopoulos has said, intranets. Of they're going to try and create internets, closed systems yeah. using blockchain, and they're going to succeed to some degree, just like companies like AOL did with the early internet. But they're going to see that uh, information wants to be free, generally speaking, 
and uh, the technology itself is going to be less efficient in that closed environment. I think we'll see as a general trend uh, over the next few years. So you're making an efficiency comment there that, well, let's talk about big data and the next stage of technology because you've got all these platforms that have won the internet game, be it Mm -hmm. Facebook, be it AOL, um, those sorts of things have. They're building out these massive platforms with apps on top of it. They are collecting all the data. If you thought of them as a new institution, they're bigger than states. Mm. Have we got to mm. Peter Singer's an, an increase in empathy because we're on Facebook? Is Debatable. <laughs> yeah. Um, are we talking about new institutions that need to be built? I think you are because you've got an agreement economy that's starting to emerge from smart contracts, which is very, very early days. Should what? we very quickly cover smart contracts because yep. you've introduced – I mentioned contracts and you've just introduced it again. So yep. I think we ought to bring it up in the context of Rajava in a moment. Okay, we can do I that. I think it makes sense. Okay, well, sorry to interrupt yep. you, Grant, if you want to finish what you're saying. What is your view on the institutions required for um, this new kind of libertarian socialism in this modern technology called blockchain? What, what are the institutions that you see would naturally come out of this? I think they're already being built but without blockchain, and blockchain is going to be uh, in- integrated with them and, and strapped on. But just wrapping up the Varoufakis point, his summary, if you will, he says, contrary to the evangelist's grand po- proclamations, democratizing and depoliticizing money will not be one of, the bit- one of Bitcoin's contributions to humanity. Now, certainly, Bitcoin is not sufficient to democratize and depoliticize uh, money or any other means of exchange. But I think it, as one application in the blockchain, uh, can be sufficient, provided there is the kind of social change that is also needed. Now, yeah, Varoufakis is is a libertarian socialist like myself, so he sees all the positives of this, and he's an extremely learned intellectual. Um, But, yeah, so going on to Rojava... Some of your listeners may be aware of the so-called uh, Phineas Fisher, as a pseudonym hack of an Italian corporation called the Hacking Team, which sells spying technology effectively to a variety of governments, including human rights abusing ones, a bunch of Gulf states, including Saudi Arabia. And Phineas Fisher, who is suspected to be Amir Taki, a prominent Bitcoin developer, the founder of Dark Wallet, who is also, as it happens, a libertarian socialist, um, donated this expropriated funds of 10,000 euro to Rojava, which he called one of the most inspiring revolutionary projects in the world today. Now, some of you who've been listening probably pulled out your teeth by now thinking, what the hell is this Rojava thing? Where on the planet does it exist? Is it a digital thing? Is it a currency? No. Rojava is the Kurdish name for northern, for northern Syria or Western Kurdistan. The Kurds are the world's largest stateless minority. They are mid- Middle Eastern people who share uh, biological and cultural heritage with Persians and Arabs and others, but who are a distinct ethnic group who, because of the partition of the Roman Empire... Uh, Roman, because of the partition of the Ottoman Empire, at the, at the hard to confuse, at the end of the First World War, uh, now exist between Turkey at the top, if you take a clockwise look, Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and Syria. And effectively what happened is in 2011 with the uprising 
And then in 2012, with the full-blown revolution uh, in Syria, effectively, the Assad regime decided that the Northern Territory was not that comparatively valuable to them compared to the West, where they have their most valuable resources. They fled to the West to protect the capitals, Aleppo and so on, and basically stood up and went away. And there was this huge power vacuum in which the Kurds could do whatever they wanted. They could set up some liberal system, they could set up some feudal system. But, and this is the important thing to notice, the Assad regime was an apartheid state with enforced Arabization uh, of, the, of the land, which meant that, that Kurds were barred from um, significant positions in the economy and society, similar to how Jews were treated uh, through lots of modern European history. Um, but there was also significant uh, disappearance. It was, a, it, was, it was an extraordinary disappearance and torture state comparable to the Nazis. Uh, so you had this combination of apartheid, uh, Jim Crow-like regulations, and a totalitarian system under which this alternative philosophy began to develop in about 2005. Now, I don't have the full... I don't have, we don't have enough time to go over the full history of this, but briefly, uh, the Kurdish freedom movement began in the 70s along with a variety of other uh, anti-colonial movements throughout the Middle East. It originally began as a Marxist-Leninist organization, uh, specifically a Stalinist one. And it and so it had, it had a similar trajectory to the ANC in South Africa, Mandela's group. They started being ethnic nationalists uh, for, for a separate Kurdish state uh, with this hardline authoritarian socialist ideology, and they adopted the repressive tactics of the state. The Turkish military would come in and massacre a whole town, including women and children. They would plant a bomb uh, and kill Turkish civilians. Uh, so they began as a terrorist organization, uh, which was running an insurgency against the Turkish state. This is the PKK in Turkey, not in Syria. Uh, but then it developed around the turn of the century, seeing the Soviet Union collapse, seeing the calamity that their strategies had wrought, and learning the, the crucial lesson uh, not to reproduce the oppression, uh, the, the tactics of their oppressors. And they, were, they, were, they, learned, they, they saw that they were, clear, they were merely reproducing uh, the oppression which they had suffered. And so they had adopted, first of all, uh, an anti-nationalist uh, ideology which uh, incorporated all ethnic and religious groups uh, and also a libertarian socialist philosophy. So this was in around 2000, 1999, with the arrest of their principal uh, military leader and, ideologi- and, and, and theorist, Abdullah Öcalan. That theory found its way into Syria uh, in 2004, 2005, fermented for a while. 2011 comes in. Uh, protests begin as part of the Arab Spring against the Assad regime. 2012, Assad regime flees, uh, and the revolution begins. Now, because of their political philosophy, they developed cooperatives, hundreds of thousands of them, all throughout uh, the, the, the the land. And I don't mean that colloquially. It's 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 mostly an agricultural part of Syria. Produces about 70% of Syria's wheat, also has some of the most significant oil refineries. It was deliberately underdeveloped, um, precisely because of the threat perceived from the ethnic, ethnic uh, minority in that part of the country, and also because it was producing basic com- commodities like wheat and oil. Um, so, in place of local governments and regional governments, they have neighborhood assemblies, where the few st- streets, or or, or villages will come together in directly democratic public meetings and engage in things like participatory budgeting, which is with an allocation of funds, they will directly democratically allocate those according to votes. And the system has a variety of features. 
So it was a, a directly democratic revolution. Hundreds of thousands of neighborhood assemblies, which confederated into larger communes, which then confederated into uh, regional assemblies, confederated into the cantons, which then confederated to the broader Rojava. And the, the basic principle here is that people have decision-making power in rough approximation to the extent to which the decision affects them. So if it's just about your locality, it's just your decision. If it affects other localities, it's a broader decision, and so on. So this is a way of, of mediating direct democracy, which was absent in you know, the Paris Commune or ancient Athens or, 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 or this, this flux uh, proposition. Um, and so the directly democratic revolution, which is perhaps the most immediately fascinating aspect of it, but the, the core part and the, the biggest development, the most drastic change has been the feminist revolution. Uh, so they have a 40% uh, quota, in brackets, minimum gender quota for civil institutions like neighborhood assemblies. The idea is if you have, you should have at least 40% males or 40% females. Otherwise, you're not, you, it's not truly democratic. It's not truly representing the population. But the, but, but the broader principle is to encourage female participation in every area of society with the idea of the empowerment of women is the most revolutionary act, especially in this circumstance, especially in this part of the world. Uh, and so they're encouraging female participation in every area of society, co-presidency at every level, and those, and mind you, that presidency is not a representative position, but a delegative dis, uh, position, which I'll, I'll describe the difference between that in a, in a moment. Uh, and they're banning female gender mutilation, honor killings, forced marriages, and so on. Widespread. So directly democratic revolution, feminist revolution, uh, revolution in terms of uh, moving toward a post-statist scenario. So they don't have a monopoly on the legitimate use of force in Rojava, which is the definition of a state. Instead, what they have is that policing is viewed as a, uh, a social responsibility for everyone. The first priority is to prevent the need for it, and they do that for, through a variety of peaceful uh, conflict resolution programs, as well as providing employment and other, a holistic approach, in other words. Uh, but the final resort is the Asaij, which are their equivalent of a police force, but they're not really a police force, because they are directly democratic, they are directly accountable to the locality in which they operate, and they are drawn from the locality in which they operate. So they, they are, it's not as if you have a police force, and this, this is the same as the military. You don't have a police force and a military responsible to a central state like we do in everywhere else in the world. What we have is a decentralized military and a decentralized state as a decentralized police force, which is accountable to local directly democratic assemblies. And just like in the economy, the, the, the principle is uh, their power is approximate to the extent to which their actions affect other people. So again, if it's a regional conflict, then that's dealt with regionally. If it's local, it's dealt with locally and so on. Uh, and it, the Asaij and the military, which is called the YPG, have a feminist branch, the YPJ. The idea is they're going to deal with women's issues. They don't want they, want... they want women to be able to come forward with things like sexual assault accusations or anything else relating specifically to gender oppression uh, to be dealt with by female authority figures uh, with the idea that they can trust... who are drawn from their own locality so that they can trust uh, one another. And this is an intrinsic part of the empowerment of women as well. Now, these are not dewy-eyed utopians. These are the most effective forces fighting against ISIS. Uh, they've been the most militarily successful in terms of territory they've gained. 
they have an extraordinary, uh, excuse the somewhat trivial word, I suppose you, what gamers would now call a kill-to-death ratio. If you look, you can see their reports uh, of, of their wars. They're the only force in Syria which has the support both of the American and Russian coalition. Um, they have diplomatic relationships with both parts of the... Op- they have a neutral position with both the Assad regime and the, op- and the Free Syrian Army. They can, tra- they can trade with both. They can negotiate... Now, 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 that's tenuous. Conflicts break out from time to time. But Rojava is the only place in Syria where there are Assad areas and Free Syrian Army areas not killing each other. Quite astonishing. And as I've said, they're the most successful force against ISIS, which is why Russia and America and most of their allies, with exceptions like Turkey, have been directly financially and diplomatically supporting them, although nowhere near enough, um, in their ambitions. So that's a very brief introduction to the Rojava Revolution. Uh, That that is is stunning. (laughs) I mean... I had a very vague notion of this. What the only real takeaway I had about this region and their, uh, for example, their uh, conflict with uh, ISIS was the fact that they have uh, female soldiers, and that these really hardline Islamic types dread being killed by women. Yes, yes, yes. That's so apparently quite a an effective thing. Do you know what sound they fear? The, do you know what sound ISIS fighters fear the most? Out of curiosity. Um, no. <laughs> there's, well, there's, there's a certain inflection that, that, that um, Kurdish and other Middle Eastern women make, but the Kurdish women's... The Kurdish oh, that women trilling fighters, sort yeah. of... Yeah. <laughs> that oh, sound that's very good. That they make. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, in, the, in the mountains, before they come down to liberate an ISIS village, and this scares the living daylights out of the ISIS fighters because their uh, misogynist theology says that if they're killed by women, they don't get into paradise. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's quite brilliant, um, but also now we have, as 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 you might know, ISIS runs the biggest sexual slavery racket in the world, including the biggest child sexual slavery racket in the world, um, theologically justified. Uh, and so the, the the women who are the primary victims of this, who are being liberated from these ISIS gangs, are being liberated by other women. This is quite revolutionary. Well. One, one of many factors which is revolutionary. And just in case there... Uh, cynicism is justified here, because these are quite extraordinary claims about a people who had just emerged from a totalitarian apartheid state, uh, 70% of whom don't have access to the internet, many of whom are illiterate, uh, and so on. Do you just want some, 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 some straightforward empirical evidence? Uh, they've built not one, not two, but three new universities since the outbreak of the Civil War, whilst spending 70% of their budget on fighting ISIS. Uh, the University of Rojava... Afrin University in the west, bordering, uh, bordering Turkey uh, and, and the Mediterranean Sea. Very beautiful country, by the, country, by the way. Very fertile lands. And uh, the Mesopotamian Social Sciences Academy, which is powered by solar panels on the roof. Because I forgot to mention, a key part of their ideology is what they call social ecology, which is that many environmental issues have at their root social problems and vice versa, which is a political philosophy which comes through the anarchist tradition through a guy called Mari Bookchin, who is an American theorist. It's complicated. We don't have time. But that's just one example. Also, um, uh, no, so, so, so what they have is a thing called... Uh, now, okay. Blockchain applications. Two, quickly. One, direct democracy. They've already overcome the social trust problem, as I've decided to call it, uh, to an astonishing degree. But they can both in- increase technical efficiency... 
and make the transition easier. Because as, as, as I mentioned before we started recording, there are still obviously a bunch of Islamists and a bunch of tribesmen and so on who are used to a feudal theocratic system and very un- uneasy about the empowerment of women and about direct democracy and about uh, some of what they see as uh, Western or atheistic ideas. Um, it can help increase trust by the same mechanism which will help improve the solidarity economy. So, um, briefly, the Rojava is not only the biggest experiment in direct democracy in the world, the, big, the, the, the most significant feminist revolution that's ever happened, uh, but it's the greatest experiment in libertarian socialism, libertarian socialist economics the world has ever seen. Now, I had to check this morning because the figure has changed. It used to be that... Um, it used to be that they... What did they say? Oh, yeah. So, so, so now uh, Dr. Alan Sep, uh, Semo, who is a PYD representative, that's uh, one of the political groups, uh, the dominant political group in the region, says the cooperative system now contributes... I think it was... before, but now contributes approximately 80% of Rojava's economy, and the private sector represents only 20%. What that means is, so these are not just worker cooperatives, because worker cooperatives are not sufficient to provide a true solidarity economy. We ran this experiment uh, in a short period of time in the Spanish Revolution 1936, but a much longer period of time in a bit of a contradictory scenario in the partially worker self-managed economy of Titoist Yugoslavia which, whilst being a communist dictatorship, uh, deviated from the rest of the communist world in actually applying some socialist principles uh, and allowed worker self-management, state-supported, uh, throughout the whole economy. This facilitated what's re- referred to quite uh, angstily by economists and, and uh, think tank guys at the time as the Yugoslav economic miracle, um, widespread enfranchisement, uh, massive, one of the largest post-war growth, growth rates and uh, massively much larger growth rate than any other Eastern European nation, comparable with some of the Western European nations, including Germany. Um, but the problem with this was, so you have a bunch of egalitarian worker cooperatives, internally directly democratic, internally interesting in all sorts of ways, secular, uh, anti-tribalistic, anti-racist, directly democratic, all sorts of interesting functions internally. But the problem is, you got an industry. All it takes is one of these cooperatives to say, hey, we we got a great deal going on here. We all got shares in the company. We're all it's very egalitarian. We're all we really enjoy our work life and so on. But hey, what if what if what if what if? Hear me out, guys. Hear me out. What if we lowered our cost of production temporarily by reducing some of these egalitarian benefits? Let's reduce everyone's pay and centralize control in the hand of a temporary boss. We'll lower our cost of production. We'll outcompete our competitors. Then our profits can raise raise raise, and we can become industry leaders. Then we can go back to the egalitarian system. That was the idea. But this led to a race to the bottom. Uh, now, Rajava is overcoming this by a system of local participatory planning, where the cooperatives are linked to the neighborhood assemblies and the communes to meet local needs and regional needs, again, depending on uh, you know, this, this federative system. Um, and this is where the blockchain comes in most handy, because they are trying to arrange... And most of this is, as, I, as I'm hinting, non-market... So not only internally is it directly democratic and money not being used, but increasingly between this 80% of the economy, 80%, increasingly money is not being used between um, firms and cooperatives and so on. For example, all public utilities are communalized, which means that oil and electricity and so on are directly and freely distributed to people uh, run by the workers' cooperatives. 
most of the land is. That 20% of the private sector, by the way, is mostly bazaars. Bazaars are Middle Eastern marketplaces, effectively. People selling things like bubblegum and imports from Turkey and so which they can't produce locally. Uh, and this is quite an old tradition. But even that's being changed now. Blockchain enables a participatory planning of the economy because it solves a variety of logistical problems and it makes the registration and synchronizing of people's preferences easier. Mm. Um, this is, I think it's been referred to by a lot of people. James Hughes of the Institute for Emerging Ethics and Technology has talked about the increased potential for some form of democratic planning uh, with increased technical efficiency. And I think blockchain, in addition to artificial intelligence, will prove the major assistance here. So that's in the the democratic sphere and the economic sphere, blockchain has a huge potential in Rojava. Very briefly, so I forgot to mention because we went straight on to Rojava, that 10,000 euro uh, that Phineas Fisher uh, alleged to be Ametaki donated was to a group called the Rojava Plan, which is an international solidarity organization. Uh, At the time, that money went to their first public campaign, which is the Feed the Revolution campaign, which is building uh, facilities to produce organic fertilizer on a large scale, which will then be distributed to local farms and cooperatives with the idea of creating a model to be replicated across Rojava. And their quote here is that not only does this solve the food problem, but it also promotes an ecological ideology, allows Rojava to continue its disengagement with capitalism and to build its self-sufficiency by no longer relying on trade with states that refuse to recognize its autonomy and, and newly announced federation. Uh, it's a bit, a, bit, a, bit, a, bit, a bit more of an isolationist uh, stance than I would take, but still very good. Uh, and they collected over 85,000 euros uh, from almost 600 backers in just six weeks and, quote, received almost half of our donations in cryptocurrency. Nice. Which is quite great. Uh, yeah. Now, how much of that is Taki, you know, and, and, and or, well, Phineas Fischer and, and allies is unknowable. But they, they also do things like Earthbag, which is basically like a similar concept to, to the Earthship. Uh, it's you know, low-cost ecological houses they're doing solar panels. They're doing plastic greenhouses. They have a Bitcoin address on their website. Please look that up, and we'll be in the show notes as well. Uh, please, you know, they need and also Rajava recovery volunteers also have a Bitcoin address, although I'm not as familiar with them. I'm I'm actually a little bit stunned right now because um, I had very little idea of this part of the world. I had a very lazy idea about Kurdistan and uh, what it meant and uh, I had uh, I, you know I remember those awful uh, pieces of reporting that would go into uh, villages after Saddam Hussein's people have been through and gassed a whole heap of men women and children those sorts of things but um, I had no idea the uh, the revolutionary uh, social economic and political activity in that part of the world, and it is quite—it seems quite anomalous, given the um, ethnic and religious backgrounds that that those people represent. Um, you had no idea about this either, I take it, Grant? No, I need to do a lot more looking into this. It's—it's it's super interesting that they have, because of the sheer pressure they are under, had to f- um, create a new level of philosophy in some senses to make this work. It's fascinating. 
It certainly is. And now it's interesting also. Uh, sorry, how old are you, Raphael? Uh, nearly 21. Nearly 21. Newly. Nearly Recent, 21. 21. And here are these old dudes learning all this stuff, right? Um, I, I suppose that to finish off, I, I wonder if you could give us a really, uh, in summary form, high-level view of how at 21 years of old, you uh, of age, uh, you've come to know about all of this kind of thing and have such a clear sort of, or what appears to be a very clear sort of philosophical framework uh, to approach the world with. Um, d- give us a summary. Who are you? Well, I suppose a, bit, a, a significant amount of, amount of this interest comes from my father, um, Simon Taylor, who's the founder of Unisolve, uh, his own small software, small but quite significant software company. They do work for, for large corporations, Monash University, American corporations, others. Um, he is involved in the early development of the internet, the early open source movement, early Linux, Linux movement, uh, very interested in uh, complexity, uh, criticism of religion, an atheist, all, all sorts of ideas. And, you know, he had his own trajectory from being quite a, a stout Catholic conservative in his youth and proceeding out of, uh, out of that in his middle age. And it was when he was going through that transformation that I picked up on a little bit of this. What age were you? I was 13, 12, 12 to 14, somewhere. Was it scary? Uh, No, it was exhilarating because I was playing Need for Speed, Most Wanted, and Star Wars Battlefront 2 and Tekken and stuff, which are all good good, good fun listening to Linkin Park. But I I saw these books on these bookshelves, and some of them had quite interesting names. The God Delusion and God is Not Great lurched out to me. Yeah. Because I never considered anything political, but I'd never considered religion. And it seemed to me that it was important to know whether God exists and if he exists, what his nature was. Because I was becoming a young man. I thought it was necessary to delve into this a little bit. So I got out the, <laughs> the God delusion and I read it in the bath, which is a great way to read, I think, because you do it for hours. And I was struck by the opening paragraph, uh, paraphrasing a little bit. Uh, God is the most <laughs> unjust character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it. A vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That was Richard Dawkins' opening <laughs> sentence to the God Delusion, and I was hooked. I didn't need video games anymore. My proudest moment in life is substituting video games for books, which is what I did. And then, and then it went into Hitchens and so on. Yeah. But then my, 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 so my criticism of religion then expanded, though. I thought, well, if, if, if everyone is so misguided about... God and religion, then what, what else might be fatuous, uh, assumed, pretended, um, believed without good reason in our society? So I, I developed this broadly free-thinking epistemology, which I inherited somewhat from the new atheists. Uh, respect for evidence-based reasoning and logic, contempt for superstition, tribalism, and so on. And I expanded that critique to the state uh, and to Capitalism. And I noticed I wanted to be a libertarian and a socialist. And luckily for me, looking back at history, I developed, I discovered that this was a thing. Uh, reading, reading about the history of the First International. I was about 15, 16. Joined the Melbourne Anarchist Club, of which I'm, I have been on and off members, a member for a while. Um, then I discovered blockchain uh, like a year ago, because I, I was listening to the Joe Rogan Experience. I saw this Andreas Antonov. So when I first heard bi- about Bitcoin, I thought, oh, great. You know, here's another complicated financial instrument. 
uh, tech-savvy financial instrument for the bankers to run the world with, just what the world needs. And the first person I heard raving about it was Stefan Molyneux, who's this kind of heaven's gaze cult leader, anarcho, so-called anarcho-capitalist type character. He does these crazy videos where it's just his bald head and the screen just like from his neck up. He's a maniac and he's a raging misogynist, among other things. But um, he was saying, it's going to change the world. And so I was like, okay, if he's interested in this, I don't need to be interested in this. I had quite a, looking back, quite a narrow, dismissive view of it. But then I, th- I thought I, I would indulge Antonopoulos, and I've never looked back. And I'm fascinated by blockchain now for that reason. But, you know, if you want to get psychological, you know, I had a lot of personal experiences which affected this trajectory, um, which I suppose is the subject of another podcast. But briefly, if people have looked at my raw profile, raw magazine profile, and scoffing at my claim to be a freelance journalist, given that I've published one item... Uh, <laughs> as well as doing a bunch of podcasts with my previous podcast, Floodgates of Anarchy. Um, let it be known that I've been working on a book entitled Mesopotamia Reborn, uh, subtitle, Rojava Revolution and the Seeds of a New Enlightenment. That was the title. But then I realized toward the end of this, middle of this year, that there was a, about a silly idea to write a, a book on a revolution during a war uh, in, a, in the time span of a year. It's about as silly as trying to write about the Second World War in 1938 and trying to publish it in 1939. So what I'm in, instead doing is I'm going to start releasing these chapters as articles. So I'm sitting on a quite a large chunk of material, which will be coming out shortly, uh, and I hope people enjoy And you'll see that on the Raw Magazine profile. Also see it on my public Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash Taylor 3 I believe. It'll be, in, it'll be in the show notes. And I'm developing a website as well for that. Uh, so I suppose that's the, that's the general Thank you. sketch. Well, it's been an immense pleasure, and uh, I, I'm I'm really really pleased that uh, you came in today. And um, I understand that you're going to uh, create a new podcast for yourself. This is the first episode of that. This is the first episode of it, mm-hmm. and we're going to jointly publish that, and then you will go on to. Uh, to publish your own podcast into the future, so I wish you all the very, very best with that. Do you have a name for it yet? Well, I'd like to thank you both for joining me on the fearless imagination. The fearless imagination. So <laughs> That's right. I, I, uh, I urge everybody to keep an eye out for uh, for that and uh, to follow Raphael. And uh, I'd like to thank you, Grant, for helping me out here today. Yes, thank, thank you, you for joining much. us. Thanks for coming. Been super interesting, thank you. It's been it's been uh, an education for me and uh, a very enjoyable and uh, inspiring hour and a bit so far. <laughs> so uh, it'll be a bit longer than that uh, because uh, Raphael will uh, have uh, presented a sort of a backgrounder on Bitcoin at the beginning, which you yeah. will have heard by now if you get to this point. There'll be a bunch of extra material in my version. Probably go for two hours. So there check you go. that out if you if you didn't get enough on this one. Okay. Well, who could ever get enough of this? So, uh, <laughs> okay, well, look, thank you all for, for joining us uh, on this very special Crypto Goss, and we look forward to you joining us again in the future, and uh, we'll try and find something equally interesting to talk about, but that's going to be a challenge, I would say. <laughs> okay, thank you once again. Bye Revolutionary for now. wishes, everyone. Bye, everyone.